Thank you, Don, and, and for sharing the work that um, the Gideons do and, and spreading the seed of the Word of God, right? Uh, I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Genesis. Um, for those of you who are new or fresh with us, we preach through the Bible expositionally, which means we preach through books of the Bible, and we're currently going through Genesis, and, and today we're in Genesis chapter 23. This year... On December the 14th, uh, will mark 10 years since what is in my mind one of the greatest uh, American tragedies in recent history. 10 years ago, a guy named Adam Lanza entered Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut and shot and killed six teachers and staff along with 20 children between the ages of 6 and 7 years old. And don't get me wrong, any shooting is tragic, and, and we have plenty to choose from, don't we? Um, plenty to choose from. But this one sits with me different for a number, in a number of ways, for a number of reasons. Uh, it's one thing to shoot up a nightclub or a you know, college, but you know, to do it at an elementary school, it just kind of defies reason. And, and what I want to highlight isn't the, the fear that these shootings cause, and they certainly cause a lot of fear, but uh, the the uncertainty, the uncertainty that these kinds of, of shootings cause. Like most of all, we want to know why. Why, why, what, why, as in what would drive someone to do this? Why would anyone do this? How could someone do this? Why wasn't this prevented? Why were the warning signs ignored? Uh, well, in 2021, so about nine years later, several families settled a lawsuit that uh, helped ease some of the pain that they felt. But, but one parent, uh, Francis Wheeler, said something that I think ring, rings true in every human heart. She said, Our legal system has given us some justice today, but my husband and I will never have true justice. True justice would be our 15-year-old healthy, 15-year-old healthy and standing next to us right now, but he will never be 15. He'll be six forever. And what I think rings true in every human heart is that cry for justice. Even if every lawsuit was settled, even if Adam Lanza was alive and was judged and received the maximum punishment for his crimes, it would never seem like enough. We are always looking for something more than we are capable of achieving. We can't achieve the level of justice that needs to come to a guy like Adam Lanza. We can't achieve that. It's, it's beyond us. And, and this is what I believe chapter 23 is about. It's actually a very sad chapter because we've had a lot of good things happen. Just one chapter ago, the promised child was born. He's here. And we have this epic story of, of Abraham taking him on top of the mountain to, to sacrifice him and God provides the ram. And then now, just out of the blue, Sarah dies. Humanity is, is still stuck. Still in the same situation as they were before Isaac was born. And, and just like with Francine Wheeler, this is to cause us to keep looking. 
by ourselves, we cannot accomplish what most needs to be done. We are not capable of achieving the kind of deliverance that we long for. We're not capable of achieving the deliverance from death and destruction that we need. We need more. And so what I believe this chapter does is teach us three vital truths about living in a world marked by death. So I want us to read this chapter, chapter 23. Uh, you can follow along on the screen, follow along in your own Bibles. Chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. First truth, death is humanity's plague. The, the biblical writers, as you're reading the Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament, wrote more or less chronologically. Like, more or less, it's this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, from first to last. But unlike American biographers or American historians, they weren't so strict about that. Like they felt a freedom that we don't about placing an event maybe earlier or later in, in the story to make a point to, and to make an important point. That's why when you read the Gospels, the events of Jesus' life are kind of all over the place because they're like, well, we're more interested in teaching you about who Jesus is than just giving you a, a day-to-day breakdown of his life, even though it's all true, right? So I believe this is what Moses is doing here. And, and, and for a long while, Right, Genesis, uh, for a long time, was, was this. This person died, and he lived so and so years, and he died. 
And he had a son who lived so and so years. And he died. And he had a son. And this guy lived so and so years. And he died. And he had a son. And so on and so forth. And that happened for a long time. But we haven't seen that in a while. We've been in the life of Abraham. We've been consumed with Abraham. But when we take a step back, it's like, whoa, we haven't had a a death chapter in in a while. Not only have we not seen that, but it happens, this right here, happens right after Isaac is born and God makes these wonderful promises concerning him. And, and furthermore, we're reminded over and over again that Sarah is dead. Like Moses is not letting this fact escape our attention, right? So uh, verse 2, Sarah died. Verse 3, Abraham rose before, not Sarah, before his dad. Verse 5, Abraham wants to bury, not Sarah, his dead. This is repeated in verses 6 and 7 and 11 and 13. So Moses Moses skips from Isaac is born. The promised child is here. He skips from Isaac is now here to Sarah is now dead. I think he does that on purpose. He skips over 30 years here. And I think this juxtaposition is to show that even though the long-awaited promised child is here, death still plagues humanity. The curse is not over even though the promised child has arrived. We're waiting for the seed. Remember that seed, the promised one from chapter 3, who will vanquish the serpent and bring life back to God's people. But even though this promised child, Isaac, is still here, death still reigns. It's still present. And, and, and if we act like, we get our mindset. Like we're reading the Bible for the first time, or maybe we're reading it like an Israelite. This should cause us to wonder, wait, this long-awaited child didn't fix this? We waited three decades for him to come along, and people are still dying? We're still in this mess? This chapter answers that question. And in fact, as Genesis goes on, keep reading, it shows us that death is humanity's only guarantee. Uh, Robert Purnell, uh, an early Baptist pastor from the 1600s, he wrote, Lo, here is the anatomy of our life. It is a shrub, a leaf, a reed, a rush, a grass, a smoke, a cloud, a wind, a water, a a bubble, a vapor, a shadow, a nothing. We no sooner have our being but we are going to our end. Life is, listen to what he says, this is so true. Life is uncertain, but death is certain. For we are more sure to die than to live. For what is more certain than death? And what is so uncertain as life? Death is inescapable. And yet we're always trying. We're always trying to escape death, even when we try to make it pleasant, right? Like the Lion King, circle of life. Guess what? Your body decomposes and becomes soil for other animals. It doesn't, we try to make it more pleasant. We're trying to escape it. And because the inevitability of death makes everything seem so futile. What Genesis is showing us, especially with chapter 23, is that we can't produce the solution of dying on our own. It should cause us to continue searching for more. 
And that's one of the main problems of the human condition is that in our searching for more, we retreat and resort to all kinds of sinful and wicked action. But guess what? This is why God gave us the Bible, that our searching would go here. This leads to the second truth. Faith is humanity's gift. Uh, another, obviously Sarah's death is the main focus of this passage, but, but kind of how he writes about Sarah's death is this weird haggling that's going on between Abraham and the Hittites and this guy named Ephron. Uh, I think a distant relative of Zach Ephron. I don't know if you guys know who that is. But anyway, uh, uh, Abraham is, is living in the land of Canaan. Uh, he's, he's living among these guys called the Hittites, and he's wanting to purchase a tomb on Hittite land. And, and obviously, there's buying a tomb, getting attractive land is, is a lot uh, more important um, in, in this day and age than it is here. Of course, I used to get calls all the time about the plot of land for uh, um, in our cemetery back, back here, but I didn't have to go through all this kind of haggling. Um, so, so you're, you're buried with your family, right? So we read in, in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, right? So-and-so died, was buried with his fathers. So, so you're, it's important to be buried with your family, buried among your ancestors, and also, it's very important, under the protection of your gods. You want to be buried in your homeland to be buried under the protection of your god. Remember, in the thinking at this time, gods were very... Um, land-centric. Uh, the, the gods were tied to the lands in which they dwelled. And so you can read this actually in Scripture itself. In 2 Kings, uh, the Assyrians um, had um, deported people from north, the northern kingdom of Israel and sent them back in, and they started to get eaten by lions. This was a big problem. And so in 2 Kings, they sent a letter to the king. They said, the, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. So in, in, in burial, there's, there's an act of worship involved. So that's what makes the purchase of this specific tomb so important. Abraham needed this land. He needed this to be under his possession because it's an act of worship on his part. This is what's happening. Death is causing Abraham to look beyond what he is capable of achieving and putting his trust and faith in God to accomplish them. I want to show you how that's true. The first that Abraham recognizes that this isn't just any land. This is the land that God had promised him and his family over and over and over again. This is, this is God's land that He will give to Abraham's family and descendants. This, this is their homeland. So it's an act of faith on Abraham's part to bury Sarah in the homeland of Yahweh. The second is, we are, alarm should be going off, he's buying this tract of land from the Hittites. Right? If you don't know the Hittites from the rest of the Bible, we just saw them in chapter 15. He knows very well who they are. God makes this wonderful covenant with Abraham and he says to your offspring, I give this land, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And God reiterates that again just last chapter that 
your offspring will conquer the gates of their enemies. So Abraham knows that that in, in, this is not my land right now. And these are enemies that God has promised that he will defeat. But he's looking beyond that. As an act of faith and an act of worship to know that this is God's land that he's promised and these God's people will dwell here over against their enemies. He's operating by great faith. Listen, the, the heroes of the Bible are not great moral heroes, they are great faith heroes. We've seen over and over again how often Abraham fails. And faith, though, is Abraham's instrument to, by which he looks beyond human death, beyond decay, beyond human limitation, to the God who's able to do far more than he asks or imagines. I can imagine that, that Abraham may have guessed, right, that he would see something in his day that he and Sarah would, would inherit, but Sarah dies, and that, that kind of puts to death any hope that he may have had for that. This is what makes faith such an extraordinary gift. When I say it's humanity's gift, it's not our gift to give, it's a gift given to humanity. Because without faith, this is as good as it gets. Without faith, Francine Wheeler has no hope that her son who got shot when he was six will ever get more justice than a lawsuit being settled nine years later. Life Life is good, but we are so often snapped out of it by the stench of death, aren't we? Whether that stench comes from mass shootings, it comes from war, comes from pandemics, comes from trafficking, drug epidemics, murder. Living, living without faith is, is, is like living in the eye of a hurricane. It's like, yeah, life is great, but all around you is untold death and destruction. Faith is a gift because by it, we recognize we can't do this on our own. We cannot achieve what's beyond our ability. And so faith looks to the God who promises to do what is beyond us. Remember, faith isn't wishful thinking. I just, I just hope this will get better. And it's, it's, not a, it's not a general faith, right? Coffee mug faith. Have faith. It's not the kind of faith that we're talking about. Faith, faith is very reasonable. Faith is very grounded. And it's faith in a specific God who promises a specific deliverance. Which brings us to the third and final truth. Deliverance is humanity's hope. I want you to look back at, at chapter 22 with me. You may or may not have to turn your Bibles just in the last few verses there. And so remember, in chapter 22, we had one of the most epic scenes in all the Bible. It really is. Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, displaying great faith and obedience, but God supplies a ram in, his pl- in Isaac's place. It's truly extraordinary. And you're reading it, and you're like, whoa, this is so awesome. And then verse 20, now after these things, it was told to Abraham, hey, uh, your brother Nahor has kids. And we have this family genealogy just kind of right there. Uh, and specifically that uh, the reason is, right, uh, uh, so-and-so had so-and-so, and Bethuel uh, fathered Rebekah. Right? That's the important part of that, those verses there. 
And, you know, it's, it's Rebecca that will go on to become Isaac's wife. But to me, this is suspiciously out of place. Like, kind of a weird bit of information here. It's like when Willa fills me on on her bowel movements every time she goes to the potty. Like, thank you for the information, uh, but I'd rather kind of get back to what I was doing. Uh, it's like, thank you for the information here, but I'd rather get back to this really cool Bible story, right? Uh, and this is true because especially after we read about uh, Rebecca's history, we start reading about Sarah's death. So it doesn't seem to be connected, but here's what I believe Moses is doing. I, I believe Moses is making a, a bridge. We're told about Rebecca's origins, and then we have to read about Sarah's death before we read anything about Rebecca again. And she comes up in the very next chapter. Why? Because even though this mother of the promised child dies, we are introduced to the very next in line. The death of Sarah, in other words, isn't the end of hope. Even though Isaac didn't bring the, the end of death for, her, for his mother Sarah, her death makes way for the next woman in God's sovereign plan for the family of promise who can produce the promised seed. This, so this chapter is actually filled with hope. No, humanity is not out of this mess. Death still plagues humanity. We're still cursed. Still under the curse, but with the coming of Rebecca is God's continued faithfulness in bringing the promised deliverer. Curse in this chapter with the death of Sarah meets blessing. The continuation of, of the line to bring about the promised seed. The faith of the Old Testament characters was in this deliverer. That's where their faith was. They didn't know who he would exactly be. They didn't know when he would come, but it was true faith in the true God who promised the true deliverer through this family. It's like when you're sitting in a room in your house, you have a hallway, uh, maybe you hear footsteps or you see a shadow, you know someone is there. And, and chances are you know pretty well who is there because uh, if somebody else, you'd be really surprised, right, for most of you. But, you know, if, if I know it's Mallory coming down my house, I, I know it's, I don't, can't see her, but I see her shadow. I know it's Mallory. I know what, likely what she's coming to ask me to do, which is watch our daughter. Uh, and so, so, but, yeah, so I know the person, even though I can only see her shadow, right? This is, it, this is how faith in the Old Testament works. They, they see the shadow of Christ, not, not, not knowing exactly who he is. He's there. This is what Paul wrote, meant when he wrote in Romans 3, God did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance, in the Old Testament, He had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. In other words, God forgave them even though they didn't know Christ because their faith was in the coming of Christ. It was His shadow. That was the faith that they demonstrated. The faith in the promised deliverer. That, listen, when, when they're alive, they, if you're in Abraham and Sarah's shoes, you could think it's um, Isaac who's the deliverer. Isaac could think it's Jacob. Jacob could think it's any number of his son. They don't know who the promised deliverer is going to be. But for us, 
That person is revealed. We know Him. And what a deliverer He turned out to be. He is the Son of God who existed in eternity in perfect delight, perfect harmony, perfect love with His Father and with the Spirit. This eternal Son of God became a baby. And, And even though He was fully man, humanity didn't produce Him. God produced Him by the Spirit to be born of a virgin by grace. And this, this God-man who, who for eternity had a name only known to the Father was given a human name. Jesus. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Never once in His thoughts, in His words, His affections or His deeds did He ever sin. And yet it was the will of the Godhead to crush Him. It was the will of the Godhead that the very righteousness of God Himself would be made sin for ungodly people. And the victory that this Son of God, Jesus, achieved on the cross was made complete when He rose from the, again from the dead. And to all who did receive Him, to all who believed in His name, He freely gives the spoils of what He achieved, of what He accomplished. Listen to what this deliverer does. Full forgiveness of sin. Not in in part, but the whole. The complete righteousness of the Son of God Himself. You don't have just some regular human righteousness. You have the righteousness of the Son of God. Adoption. Not not only are you forgiven, not only are you kind of righteous, but you're adopted into into God's family as His very own son and His very own daughter. If that's not enough, the Spirit is poured out abundantly onto you and in your innermost being who keeps you and sanctifies you, intercedes for you and guides you. Endless grace to work in you, to give you the desire to will and to work for His glory. The promise and guarantee of of heaven forever. The promise of a resurrection body to enjoy heaven forever fashioned after the image of Christ. And this this body will have capacities for joy and love and worship that you have never known. And yet will know every day in increasing measure for an eternity. What a deliverer He turned out to be. What a deliverer. And that's true Right now, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you don't deserve it. You never deserved it before you were saved, and you don't deserve it after you were saved. No matter how holy you've become. You were born under curse as if you yourself had eaten the tree of the garden. And you could never achieve it. The only thing that you are good in and of yourself of achieving is more of God's wrath, more curse. You're not just undeserving, you're ill-deserving. But God produced it for us freely, abundantly by His grace. So whether, whether you've led a sinful life up to now, God gives you the deliverer that you need, 
Or if you're a Christian, you've been struggling with sin, God gives you more grace because of His Son, the Deliverer that He gave for you. If only you would receive Him. Receive this Christ, this Deliverer today, if you do not know Him. And this morning, I want to invite everyone to respond to God's Word to you as, as we sing. Respond in prayer, respond in song, in repentance, in faith. I'll be up at the front. Let's respond this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are the promised Deliverer. Abraham didn't know who You were. Sarah didn't know who You were. Isaac didn't. But, but we know. And what a mercy it is that we live at this time. The time of Your abundant favor. Now is the time. Now is Christ revealed. We have Him fully. We have Him finally. We have Him freely. And death still plagues us. And Father, I pray that You would convict us so deeply of the deadliness of sin. Convict us deeply that sin is not pleasurable. Sin is not something we can flirt with, but sin is ugly, sin is horrible, sin is deadly. Convict us of, of the deadliness of sin that we would look. Look to the only one who can deliver us from this body of death. And what a deliverer you are. Deliver us from our short-sightedness. Deliver us from our selfishness and from our pride. Deliver us into greater faith that we would see You as You are. A great, good, glorious, satisfying, joy-filled Savior. And it's in Your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.